Hello, welcome to Book Chat. I'm Carl Halliker. And we're delighted to have as a guest today Mike Missinelli as a, uh, uh, certainly a voice you might recognize more than a face. Mike, uh, Mike has been, uh, currently he has a radio show in the sports show in New York City and we're delighted he joined us today. Uh, his book is called The Perfect Season, How Penn State Came to Stop a Hurricane and Win a National Football Championship. Uh, anybody who writes a book with that title obviously has to be a Penn State grad. Is that right, Mike? Uh, I am a Penn State grad, and uh, I, I attended that game. And um, mm -hmm. I, I, I never really thought that 20 years later that I'd be writing a book about it, but it just uh, it so happened that way, Carl. Well, it was a great book and a great game. And you're also a 1986 graduate of Weiner Law School. Yes, yes. And um, that was uh, supposed to start my brilliant legal career. Mm -hmm. And instead, I found my way back into the media business. So, so here I am back. With a law degree that's just kind of on the shelf smiling at me. Well, you, you did say you teach uh, uh, entertainment law? Yeah, sports and entertainment law at St. Joe's. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, the burgeoning field that everybody seems to want to be a sports agent these days and uh, right. uh, get into sports marketing. And that's the way the course is tailored. Right. As they say, show me the money, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, Mike, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Uh, I, this first question is sort of facetious, but based on what you read, I had to couch it this way. You were a varsity baseball player at Penn State. and So how did this experience affect your love for Penn State football while you were there? Well, while I was there, I really didn't have that much of an affection for Penn State football, and for two reasons. Number one, because they weren't very good at that time. I mean, I had come in as a freshman uh, and in the aftermath of the John Capaletti Heisman Trophy, mm -hmm. uh, which was a good time at Penn State football. And then it, it really kind of hit a, hit a downward slide there for a while. I, I don't recall if they ever went to a ball game when I was there. But yeah. the other thing was, being a baseball player, you kind of were a second-class citizen as it involved the football team. And with the football team used to get, uh, I, I tell this story all the time, that we ate at the same uh, training table, uh, training table meals. And the football players had an unlimited supply. They could get anything they wanted. Yeah. And the baseball players, they, they would actually uh, ca calculate, we were allowed to spend 250 of the training table. So if you got a, a little carton of milk that was 50 cents, uh, you know, that's 50, or you got $1.50 left, you get string beads, that was another 50 cents. So you wound up paying that in your own pocket anyway. And uh, the baseball players kind of resented that, that we, we couldn't get the sure. same uh, amenities as the football players. Yeah, absolutely. So w when over the years did you transform and become a... Uh well, obviously, I, you know, as much as you try to push it down, yeah. you still go to the games on Saturday yeah. as a student. You get caught up in, in, the, in the, the, the same excitement. The student section was just a great place to be. And uh, uh, it just a wonderment. I, I came from a very small high school, and I, I go to Penn State, and you're in the middle of, uh, at the time, it was 85,000 people, and uh, yeah. the excitement and the tailgating and, uh, you know, the, just the craziness that went on in, in rooting uh, for Penn State football was, was pretty much an experience. So when you leave, you kind of grow, I think, more uh, into more of a Penn State football fan because so many other people are Penn State people, and mm -hmm. uh, every year it's a hope springs eternal on what this team's going to do, whether Turner has something up his sleeve, whether they can contend for a national championship, and especially in the 80s, they, they yeah. contended for a couple, actually. Yeah, did you just say hope springs paternal? Yeah, well, yeah, you into? could say it that way. <laughs> that's that's definitely yeah. way you could say it. Right, and I, I, and I should have mentioned you were uh, a reporter for the Enquirer for 10 years. Yeah, I started my career as a, as a print journalist to start out at a small paper made my way to the Enquirer and, and, and covered a lot of college and pro sports and uh, I never covered Penn State as a beat uh, mm -hmm. but um, covered some Penn State games and uh, right. you know just tried to settle into being a Penn State football fan uh, in addition to, to covering football I know you're not really supposed to be a fan when you when you write for newspaper right. but the you know the, the college loyalties are, are hard to, to push down 
Yeah. So just as an overview, Mike, uh, the perfect season, 1986, just as a broad overview, what made that season so special? Well, uh, what made the season special is that they came into the season as a contender for the national championship, but uh, there was this juggernaut uh, named the Miami Hurricanes that uh, you, when you look at their schedule, you say, well, they're not going to lose a game, so Penn State has to go undefeated. And the pressure to, to stay up with Miami that year, as Miami moved into an early season number one ranking, Penn State had had a couple of really close calls that year. They had to come from behind and beat Maryland, and uh, they were almost upset by Cincinnati. And then towards the end of the season, they had to preserve the undefeated record by beating Notre Dame. So the way, the way it all evolved, that they, they kind of wedged their way into a number two ranking mm -hmm. uh, while Miami was, you know, kept winning. And Miami, had a, you know, they were just terrific. They had yeah. uh, uh, NFL-quality players at every position, and uh, a lot of people thought that that was the greatest football team ever assembled. Uh, they had the, the rebel Jimmy Johnson as their coach. They had the gunslinger Tessa Verde who had won the Heisman Trophy. And so all those forces combined in that national championship game uh, the undercurrent, the good versus evil, the, the mm -hmm. underdog versus the heavy favorite, the, the brash team versus the polite team, the, the pro team versus the team that didn't have many pros. and All those teams really collided and made for a great story. Probably the Union versus the Confederacy. Too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, it was yeah. You know, it was like the old outsiders book, the Greasers versus the Socius. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you rooted uh, for, for the Greasers almost. And yeah. Penn State really played that role uh, to yeah. the hilt, especially when they, they wound up going to Tempe and they, they, you know, with Miami coming off the, the plane in fatigues and Penn State wearing their blue blazers. Mm -hmm. Now the book is definitely much more than a recap of each game. It's the story of the uh, season through the eyes of the players. Was it difficult to connect with so many of the players after two decades? It was amazingly easy. I had first um, got the inkling, uh, uh, a gentleman named uh, Kevin Corder, who is a very big Penn State supporter and is involved in the Alumni Association, and we got to chatting one day. and. Uh, he brought up that maybe a book idea would be good, and it, uh, we kicked around some ideas, and uh, this 1986-87 team came about, and he put me in touch with DJ Dozier, and I went down to Virginia where DJ, who was the star halfback on the team, was drafted in the first round after the season, uh, and I spent a couple of days with DJ, and um, he had plenty of stories to tell about it, and uh, he guided me into to where certain guys were. So I just made it a mission to try to track down as many of them as I could and spend some uh, much time with them. And you know, 20 years later, that, that's certainly a moment of glory when yeah. a lot of those guys did not go to the next level. So they yeah. held on to that moment of winning a national championship, and they were more than willing to share stories. Yeah, now you did, you did mention D.J. Dozier, but he was quite helpful in the process of this book. Yeah, he was he? terrific. D.J. Uh, just is a great guy, and uh, he, he had, uh, you know, he, his pro career did not flourished like a lot of people thought it would. So he kind of got into uh, in business world real early in his life, and uh, he had been uh, thriving as a, as a businessman down in, in Virginia and uh, still had some ties uh, in Pennsylvania working with a company. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, we, we, we got along very well, mm -hmm. and uh, he's, a, he's a very devout Christian. So the stories he, he were telling me, I knew were earnest stories. <laughs> uh, you know, they, he wasn't going to uh, lie or cheat or embellish any yeah. of them. They were true stories they were going to tell yeah. me. And, and when, when did you decide and why did you decide to write this book? I, you know, I, I, the, the more I talked to people, the more interesting stories came out of it. And I, I, I just thought it, it would make a good book. Uh, we, the 20-year anniversary was coming up to, um, actually, you know, the 87, it's this year. If you mm -hmm. go to the 86 season, it was last year. But uh, I, I just thought that would be uh, interesting to, to a Penn State football fan that has, hasn't had a taste of that in a really long time. And you never know 
if that's ever going to happen again. I mean, when you think about it, they, they won one in 83 and won one right. in 86, and Penn State fans kind of got conditioned that was going to happen a lot, but it, it's really not that easy. So yeah. uh, I think most, most Penn State fans really held on to this 86 one as, as something really special. So even if they, they win one down the road, it may never top the theme of this 86 team. But I just thought it would make an interesting story, an interesting book. And I also wanted to add the other side of it, too, from the Miami viewpoint. Mm -hmm. there, there was a team that was expected to win that game. And they didn't win it. And they had to deal with the disappointment for, for their entire lives. And the more Miami players that I talk to, that, that disappointment rings as true today as it did in, in 1987, that January 2nd game. Uh, Mike, let's get into some of the meat of the 1986 season now. Uh, how was Penn State predicted to do that season? And what challenges and turmoil did the team face that year? Well, the, the first challenge they faced is that uh, they, they, Paterno had lobbied for a, a brand-new practice facility. And uh, the university had promised that it would be done by the time they started their uh, fall workouts in, in August. And it was not done. So it, that was the first complaint that Joe had, that this thing wasn't done for him. And they, they were expected to be good and, uh, you know, how they were going to overcome this. And so he was a little cranky uh, early on. And, and the other thing, there was a big quarterback controversy coming into the season. Uh, John Schaefer was the starter of the year before, but it had, it had a miserable orange ball against Oklahoma. And so the, the talk in the offseason was he was going to be replaced, and a lot of media lobbied for that replacement, uh, you, for the backup. Uh, and uh, so that went on, and you know, up until two days before the first game, they still hadn't decided who was going to be their starting quarterback. They were supposed to be good. They had a lot of returnees. Their defense was going to be solid. They had a Heisman Trophy candidate in D.J. Dozier. Mm -hmm. But the quarterback position was uncertain, and... Uh, you know, they didn't really know how good they were. And uh, when you don't have a starting quarterback, you, you really you don't have any continuity. Well, finally, he named Schaefer a couple days before the Temple game. Mm -hmm. And Schaefer had a great game. He came out and he played very well. Uh, and so it, it kind of all came into place in that first game. And then they rolled in their second game and their third game. And so at that point, uh, Paterno started to realize that, you know, this is a team that's playing awfully well, and a team that uh, really to beat us is going to have to be a very good team. Yeah. Uh, talking about, you always hear stories about how players for, uh, are either, I don't know, genetically or for whatever reason, uh, artificially are, are bigger and better and stronger now than they were 20 years ago. Was that the case with the Penn State team, do you find? Or? Well, you know, it, that was always an emphasis in Penn State football. Uh, you know, he had a very good offensive line that year, a very good defensive line. They, they, so in the trenches, they were pretty mm -hmm. good. Um, they also had a couple of mammoth fullbacks, and uh, Penn State football has been blessed with a lot of great fullbacks at the time, but they used those fullbacks a lot, Tim Manoa and Steve Smith, and that helped uh, make D.J. Dozier's uh, path uh, easier. But yeah, they, they were a pretty strong team in the trenches. That, that, that's where they, they really made their bones against other teams. They beat them in the line of scrimmage. Okay, and Penn State back then was known as linebacker U as it is today, and pretty good ones back then too, huh? Yeah, they had uh, probably their, their four best linebackers as a crew. Uh, Shane Conlon, the, you know, Jerry Sandusky, defensive coordinator, will tell you flat out that he was the best linebacker to ever play there. Uh, and he had a great pro career, became an all-pro player. Uh, they had a, a crazy man named Trey Bauer, who, while, while did, did not have a pro, a pro size, was still pretty much a kamikaze. They had this import, Pete Gethopoulos from Canada. Nobody knew really much about him, but he had played on a field that was a lot larger than they, they played American uh, yeah. football fields. He, he played defensive line there. They said, well, if he can run around in that field in Canada, he'd be a great linebacker at Penn State. And they had Don Graham, who was as tough as they come. So their four linebackers were very, very good. All right. 
And, uh, you know, you were talking about John Schaefer before he, he got a second. He got a reprieve and came back and had a good Temple game. But how, uh, how would you describe him? Was he, effective, was he an effective leader throughout the season? He was very much an effective leader. In fact, when you talk to all these guys, that's the first thing they say about him. And he didn't have a great arm. He wasn't fast. There was nothing about John Schaefer that was really impressive. Uh, but he, he won, uh, and even as a high school player, he played at uh, Moeller High in Cincinnati, which is a very well-respected high school program, mm -hmm. and uh, he had never, when he came to Penn State, had never lost a football game. The first ga game yeah. he ever lost was the game the year before in the Orange Bowl, which is pretty remarkable, which yeah. tells you that you know, the guy might not have uh, the, the great physical skills, but there was something about him that uh, made him be able to lead a team pretty well, and uh, that's what he did that year. He, he was a guy that did not make mistakes. He turned that offense along. The defense really was, was the crux of that whole team. They stopped the other team. If Penn State would score 21 points, the game was over that year, and that's all mm -hmm. they tried to do. They tried to move the football on the ground. Right. Occasionally he would throw the ball. Not very much, though. Uh, another player who shows up a lot in your book is Ray Ism. Uh, he was an important contributor to the team that yeah. year. Yeah, Ray Isom from Harrisburg, Isom, Pennsylvania, 5'8", about 175 pounds soaking wet, and just a, just a, a tough-as-nails football player, uh, very underappreciated. Uh, and even Sandusky to this day says, I, I underappreciated him the first two years I had him. I didn't realize how good he was, but he was the glue of that team, and he held them together through that whole game. And uh, you know, some of the fun. I, I spent probably more time with Isom than I spent with anybody because he was just so good at, at giving me information and sharing stories of that season. Mm -hmm. And you know, he tells the greatest story. He said he was he was on the field right before the Fiesta Bowl, and Michael Irvin, the great receiver, who's now in the Hall of Fame, uh, who's about six two, two ten at the time, and you know, Isom's got to you know, play play with him in the secondary. And uh, he had heard that, that about this Ray Isom guy uh, being five eight, and he said, "There's absolutely no way that that, that he can stop me." And before the game, he sees Isom, and he turns to him, and he says, uh, are you Isom? And uh, Ray Isom looked at him and said, yeah. And he went, Pfft. And he, <laughs> he snickered and laughed and walked away from him. And that fueled Isom. Isom yeah. said to himself, first chance I get, I'm going to, like, rip him in half. And uh, one of the early plays in Miami ran was a play across the middle, and Isom just broke him in half. And Irvin wasn't a factor until, like, the last couple minutes of the game. Yeah, uh, and Isom, is, is he in Harrisburg right now? Is that yeah, he, he's an insurance adjuster in mm -hmm. Harrisburg. You know, it's funny, most of these guys just have regular jobs now. Yeah. You know, they, they were great football stars. They won a national yeah. championship, but they, they gravitated back to their homeland. They have, they have regular jobs, and, uh, and, and he's an insurance agent and, and a high school girls basketball coach and just loves his life and spends time with his children. And, uh, you know, and, and he doesn't really carry that many memories. You know, you, you would think that you would see a lot of pictures of that mm -hmm. year uh, mm -hmm. around in his house. and. He's kind of put it away, and uh, you know, it, it took me a while to get in touch with him, and, and I think he was reluctant at first to talk about it, but once I got there with him and he started talking about it, then all, all these old good vibes came out of him. What were some of the big games that season? Are there any that, that stood out leading up to this one, of course? Yeah, the biggest well, they, they, uh, obviously they, they beat Alabama that year. That was uh, earlier in the season, and... Uh, you know, a lot of the pundits around the country had said, well, who have they played? They're undefeated. They really haven't played anybody. They played Temple. They beat West Virginia, Boston College. And now came Alabama, and they played the game in Tuscaloosa. So it was a big, uh, and Alabama was higher ranked than they were at the mm -hmm. time. And, and so that was the game that really was supposed to put Penn State down. Well, instead, they dominated the game. They dominated defensively. They won the game, I think it was 22-3. to uh, the, Bobby Humphrey was Alabama's star halfback. Uh, he, he gained uh, maybe 50 yards that day. Uh, and that was the game really that people started to take notice how good this team is. And then later in the season, obviously, the Notre Dame came, game uh, came about, and 
they were they were favored in the game, mm -hmm. but uh, a lot of people thought that Notre Dame uh, was going to spring that up. So Steve Berline, who played in the NFL, was their quarterback, and uh, they had actually uh, had to pull that game out in the end. They made a good play. Uh, Notre Dame was driving. They were ready to score uh, the, the go-ahead touchdown, and uh, there was an interception in the game and a, and a big sack, and, and they wound up surviving in that game. But the, you know, the Alabama-Notre Dame games that year, uh, in addition to Cincinnati and Maryland, which they were supposed to run over, but the, mm -hmm. it was kind of a, like a down cycle. They were coming off a big game, and they, and they, they got Cincinnati and they mm -hmm. got Maryland, and they played down to that competition, and they had a scramble out of both of those games. So mm -hmm. yeah, they, they were almost upset a couple times that year. Yeah. So this seems to be a game that really the Penn State had no business winning. Uh, the Miami game. Right. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. Well, Miami, you know, yeah. certainly no one uh, polled in the country thought yeah. that Penn State would win it. They had all these national polls and uh, – uh, everybody, every state uh, came in, uh, they took a poll in every state, every state had picked Miami to win this game. Uh, and they came in as a seven and a half point favorite, which doesn't seem like a lot, but in a, in a bowl game yeah. for number one, number one versus number two, it's a pretty significant difference. And, and no, no, no one thought that Penn State could play with this team. It was the plodding Penn State with the, with the high mm -hmm. uh, shoes and, and the, the bland uniforms against this flashy team that was going to produce all these NFL players, the Heisman Trophy winner. This game was supposed to be over in the first half. And all of a sudden you looked up, uh, Penn State's hanging in, hanging in there, and then it got the lead in the fourth quarter with two minutes left. So what do you think led to the win? Was it the game plan or overconfidence or Miami's part? I think it was a, a little of both. Mm -hmm. I, I think Miami really thought that they were going to run over Penn State. Uh, Penn State knew they had to play the perfect game. There wasn't, uh, they couldn't make any mistakes. D defensively, they had to keep, uh, keep the offense in the game. They knew the offense wasn't going to score a lot of points. So there was a lot of pressure on that defense to, to win that game. Uh, and, and that being said, I mean, they got down to the two minutes. Uh, Miami drove down the field. Uh, the, the interesting story in the whole game is that uh, Miami's at the five-yard line. It's 14 to 10. Penn State's defense is gassed. There's a timeout, and Vinny Testaverde comes over to the sidelines, and Jimmy Johnson wants to run a running play. And Vinny does not want to run the play. And in fact, uh, shoes his coach away and walks back on the field and calls his own play, calls a pass play, because apparently he wanted to go out in a blaze of glory. Mm -hmm. He had thrown four interceptions at the time. He wanted to win the game with a touchdown mm -hmm. pass. Well, he got sacked on that second down, and that pushed him a little back. And then third down and fourth down was a scramble, and the fourth down pass he threw was intercepted by Peak of Thopolis, and the, that gave Penn State the game. Great, great dra drama there. Uh, but, you know, even in a book in a perfect season, the, the whole book can't just be all uh, roses. There is a, a bit of melancholy involved, wasn't there? Yeah, there were a couple sad stories that flowed from, from the team. John Bruno, who was the team's punter, was a great punter that year. He wound up being drafted in the NFL and may have been the most valuable player in that game because he buried Miami way back in their territory every time he punted. He passed away five years later, suddenly, uh, with melanoma. And, uh, it just went, you know, very quickly. Nobody knew that he wasn't diagnosed. All of a sudden, he was sick, and and, and he died a couple months later. Uh, John was a kind of a controversial figure at the barbecue they had at the Fiesta Bowl because he made a statement that a lot of people interpreted as racial, and he really didn't mean it that way. Uh, and and so uh, his story is kind of sad. He never really got to absorb the. the the accolades of that right. game like he should have. And Steve Smith, who was a fullback who played many years in the NFL with the Oakland Raiders, was the main blocking back for guys like Bo Jackson, Marcus Allen, Eric Dickerson, mm -hmm. uh, currently suffers from ALS, Lou mm -hmm. Gehrig's disease. And um, I spent a lot of time with him in Dallas, and he's totally incapacitated. And when you look at a guy who was a 240-pound fullback yeah. and, and an Adonis type of guy, and he's kind of withered away to, yeah. to nothing, and, and it's just doesn't function and tried to communicate with me by a computer screen that he had tied to his legs 
uh, it, it was really deeply touching. And uh, you know, you, you you think you have problems, so the courage that a guy like Steve Smith shows, just living every day right. in that condition, really gives you a different appreciation. Sure. Just. Um I imagine the, well, the Hurricanes did not take that loss very well. No, uh, there, there's uh, the book details a lot of uh, angst uh, with the Miami Hurricanes, a lot of helmets being thrown, uh, a lot of blame uh, being thrown around. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of these guys became star-crossed guys. Uh, you know, Testaverde won the Heisman Trophy, never really became the, the great quarterback. Certainly lasted a lot of years in the NFL, never became the great quarterback right. that everybody thought he would be. Alonzo Highsmith, uh, their main running back, uh, got injured really quickly. Uh, they had a guy named Brian Blades who ended up being arrested for manslaughter. Jerome Brown, the defensive tackle, got killed in a, in a car accident e years Eagles later yeah. when he, when he yeah. was playing for the Eagles. Yeah. They, they had a lot of guys that ran into trouble once they left. You know, Michael Irvin was uh, up and down with trouble and, yeah. and you know, made it to the Hall of Fame, obviously. But a lot of those Miami guys are star-crossed guys. And when I talked to them, uh, they were all really still disappointed about losing that game. In fact, Vinny Tesseri doesn't talk about that game. <laughs> He's still disappointed about it. Interesting. Well, well, just to sum up for us, Mike, how, how should Penn State fans remember the season, and, and what, what did it do for the whole uh, Penn State tradition sports-wise? Well, I think it was the, the ultimate feel-good story for mm -hmm. Penn State fans. Uh, coming in as an underdog, uh, hearing that you, you, know, you don't play anybody, hearing that you're, you're too goody-goody, uh, all that stuff, it was a triumph, uh, you know, of, of kind of good versus evil. I mean, I think that's what stands out most about it. It's like a, a morality play uh, of sorts that uh, here's this underdog Penn State and uh, here's this big brash Miami team. And it's a game that's going to live the test of time, I think. Uh, it was the most watched college football game in history. It still is today. 75 million people watched that game because of the drama, because of the undercurrent, because of the subplots. They even moved it to a special night on January 2nd. They moved it away from January 1st just so they could get a primetime audience. Uh, they had Tom Brokaw at the game uh, giving the halftime news while the Penn State Blue Band was playing in the background. It was very quirky, and if, if you get a chance to look at the DVD, and you can you can get the DVD, but you can see how, how primitive TV was right. back then and how long that game was on the air. Probably was on the game for four hours, but it's, uh -huh. a, it's a game that will... Uh, you know, people will remember forever if you follow Penn State football. Well, for all those people and others who uh, want to remember the game, or even if there's some Miami, Miami people who don't want to remember the game, we're pleased to have the book in our library. And Mike, it's been a pleasure today to have you as a guest on Book Chat. Mike Missinelli, his book, The Perfect Season, How Penn State Came to Stop a Hurricane and Win a National Championship. You can read it at the library or you can get it at the bookstores. I'm Carl Hallecker, and you've been watching Book Chat.